this is the Sunday where we celebrate uh, Reformation Sunday here at uh, Twinbrook. And John called and asked if I would say something in reference to Reformation Sunday. And so I, I thought that I thought that I might say something about one of the five solas. How many of us are aware that in the Reformation era and time, there were five solas? There was uh, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus, and soli dea gloria. By scripture alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, by Christ alone, and glory to God alone. What we do as we gather together here on Sunday mornings is so significant. And to say that we have a focus on sola scriptura here, I uh, think would be evident to individuals who come into our midst and those who attend regularly. We look to the scriptures and we see in the scriptures a sufficiency to lead us and guide us in our faith, that it is a sole rule for our faith. The proclamation of the Word of God, the declaration of the whole counsel of God is so critical in the context of God's people. The preaching event is critical in the context of worship. The Puritans saw preaching as so significant to the worship event that they put uh, the sermon right in the middle of the worship service itself. So service itself. So things would kind of build up to the sermon and then afterwards there would be uh, choruses, song, offering, taking, whatever. Not that there was a, a downside to the service, but it just made the preaching event very significant. And I think of Romans, the 10th chapter. I'm going to try to find it here. Romans, the 10th chapter, verse, verses 14 and 15. And I just wanted to read that before we get into our text this morning in 2 Corinthians. It, it says here, about individuals receiving the message of Christ. And it says, but how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, I misread verse 14 on purpose. But here, Paul is focusing upon the centrality of the proclamation of the gospel. And he words things in such a way that could be very easily glossed over. I do not know what your text reads for verse 14. My ESV reads, How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Is the, is the, is the uh, New International Version, is it similar to that? The reality is this, it's, the of is not there in the verse. It says, and how are they to believe in him who they have never heard unless someone goes to proclaim? Do you, do you see the difference that is there? How are they to believe in Him. Who is the object of our faith? But the Lord Jesus Christ. In Him whom they have never heard. And so you notice that as he goes on to speak about the individual who declares the word of truth, he connects together the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ with the individual proclaiming the word of truth. Now, I've said a number of times the significance of the proclamation of the Word of God in the context of our worship service. And it's something that never escapes my attention and never uh, uh, escapes uh, I don't know what's the, the seriousness of what it is that is taking place when the Word of God is proclaimed. 
The Word of God being proclaimed is not an event that takes place where someone is trying to entertain, where someone is trying to come up with something interesting to say. I don't know any variety of things that could take place in the context of when the Word of God is proclaimed. But when the Word of God is proclaimed, Christ identifies Himself with the vessel. He is speaking through the vessel. And if Christ is speaking through the vessel, then what is being declared is pretty important, wouldn't you say? Now, that does not mean that in the proclamation of the Word of God that everything that is said is perfect. I will make mistakes today, I'm sure, confident. And yet, in the context of this time of proclamation, the Word of God says that Christ is speaking through me. Christ speaks through John. And so when we gather together to worship the Lord and to hear the Word of God proclaimed, it is in that context that we look to listen and hear to the voice, the voice of Christ speaking to us. Does that make sense? And I will tell you this, that when I think about that very thought that Christ identifies himself with a vessel that is proclaiming the Word of God, all of a sudden, the significance of that moment and the weight of that moment, the responsibility of that moment is felt upon my shoulders. It is in that understanding that we realize that as the Word of God is proclaimed, the whole counsel of God must be our focus. Our focus is not upon kind of the me and my Bible sense of Christianity. That I'm a believer and the Bible here is to meet me in the context of my needs. The Word of God is revealed so that we might comprehend who God is, have an understanding of Him, and come to a knowledge of His salvation and the many colors of His grace. And I, I believe that that is a, a tremendous weight and responsibility that, that needs to be felt, if it is not, upon everyone who stands before others to proclaim the word of the Lord. And I, I must tell you that I feel that weight every time I stand here before you and have the opportunity to speak. Sola Scriptura. It is this, the word of God, that is food for our souls, and it was one of the solas for the Reformation, the establishment of Protestantism, and it is one that we must continually acknowledge in regard. Well, I guess I didn't start quite exactly the way I wanted to, but now let me ask you, that was kind of like uh, an introduction that just stopped <laughs> to now go into our text this morning, and I would like to ask you to turn with me, if you would, to Second Corinthians, the 5th chapter and verses 1 through 11a and our primary focus will be verses 10 and 11a this morning and uh, after the reading of the text we will pray together and I would ask particularly your prayers before me this morning as we work our way through this message. Let's stand together then as is our practice at the reading of the word of God. Once again, I'm reading from the ESV. For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, and who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. 
So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive what is his due. For what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, it is always a sense of need that I bear in my heart and soul when I stand in this place to speak of your truth. I pray that your hand would rest upon me today, that you would touch the frailty of my flesh, that you would touch my mind and my heart and give me recollection to say what should be said here today. May the authority of your spirit rest upon me today. I ask that you would forgive me of my sin and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would have your hand upon everyone that is here. As they've gathered together in this place and braved the Weller elements to be here, each person here has come to receive something of you as they've given themselves to you and give themselves to you in worship. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray today that through the power of your spirit, you much might touch each person that is here. That a measure of your grace might rest upon them in such a way so as to strengthen them in their pursuit of you. Be glorified now in our midst, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The last time... I had the opportunity to be here and speak. I spoke upon the judgment of God upon those who do not believe. And we looked at Luke, the 16th chapter, where we have the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And we read verses 10 and 11 in conjunction with Luke 16. But focus primarily upon that judgment, the judgment upon, upon unbelievers. And I felt that the next time I would speak, I might just spend a little bit of time on this text. Because this text deals primarily with God's judgment upon believers, though it is, a, it is, it is kind of a general sweep in relationship to judgment as well. But clearly... Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus, says, judgment upon those who do not believe. Judgment upon those who do not believe, who have received or who have heard the word, but have not responded to it. Here in this text, we have the Apostle Paul speaking about our dwelling here in the bodies that God has given us. And he refers to them as being tents. And he talks about being clothed and being unclothed. And he talks about the burdens that we have in the context of this life and how in this life as we are going forward towards him and in that pilgrimage upon which Christ has set us, we look forward to that time when we will be in the presence of the Lord forever. We can scarcely look at this passage of scripture without being reminded of what it is that the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians where he said, for, me, for to me to live is Christ but to die is gain. And after he says that, he goes on to say, I don't know whether, this is a paraphrase, Roger Mills' paraphrase, I don't know whether uh, I should go and be with the Lord at this point as if it is a choice that he has, or remain here with you to encourage you in the faith. Whether I should go with him or be here, I do not know. I am torn between these two choices, but I will choose to stay here with you. Here the Apostle Paul is looking forward to that time when he will be with the Lord, when all of the burdens of this life will be laid behind him. This text, very similar to that. But as he works his way through this text, and he considers this anticipation of being with the Lord, and the realization of the difficulties that surround him in the context of this life, he comes to this point in verse 10 where he says, for we all must, well, verse 9, he says, we make it our aim to please him. 
So in this body, we're making our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is his due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Knowing the terror or the fear of the Lord, we persuade men or others. You know, the whole language of the text as you come up to verses 10 and 11 seems to be very encouraging, doesn't it? it? It doesn't seem to bear with it just strong words of, of exhortation, but words of consolation, that we look forward to being with the Lord. And then all of a sudden he comes to verse 9, but we make it our aim to please the Lord. The Lord. Yes, that's good. But then he says, but remembering this, <laughs> we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And we know the terror of the Lord. And all of a sudden, in the midst of the context of all of this encouragement, comes this, this note that could strike fear in the hearts of those who believe. Do, do, you, do you see how that could be a possibility? How many of you have ever thought about the judgment seat of Christ as it pertains to believers? Well, probably all of us have to some extent or others, but if we have thought about it, perhaps we have thought about it in the context of the negative. We've thought about it in the context of, I am going to stand in that place. And there's a certain fear that may fill our hearts as we anticipate that coming. I remember my, my uncle, who, whom I believe was a believer from his ages of youth, he, he always had this fear about the judgment seat of Christ. Yet he was a believer. And this text has been used in the past to strike fear in the hearts of those who believe. Perhaps to manipulate individuals to a certain level of obedience or responsiveness to what the speaker may want to see the response be. But to see this text in the context of fear and trembling, a fearfulness, is, is to miss the context of what Paul gives us, which is one of encouragement. Now, that does not mean that there is not something here that is very sobering as it pertains to believers and even unbelievers. But as a believer comes to this text, he finds encouragement, he finds, or she, you know, when I say he, you know I mean she, right? I'm a product of uh, my age, I guess. So, so forgive me when I, when I do that. <laughs> I forgot what I was saying. Um, well, anyway, wherever, where I was, just let your mind wander is where I might have been going. So, in, 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 in any event, as we, yeah, we come before the judgment seat of Christ, there is, I guess I wanted to say that, that there is, there is uh, great encouragement that we can find here. And I lost my thought, thought altogether, but thank you for being forgiving. So let's press on then as we, as we consider then this text. There, there's great encouragement here along with, with exhortation that could bring to us correction. But never in the midst of it is that encouragement lost. Now let's look at this text today, if we could, for a little bit. And I would like to break this text or this message down into four parts. And the first one is the necessity of judgment. And the second is the nature of judgment. What is the nature of judgment? The third is the universality of judgment. And, and you'll notice we work our way through these that there's some uh, overlapping statements that go back to when we're looking through Luke 16 perhaps. And the final point is the basis of his judgment. So the first one then is the necessity of judgment. When we look at the scriptures we see that the concept of judgment runs throughout the Word of God. When you go to the Old Testament and we see that there was judgment upon Adam and Eve as they're in the garden, we've spoken about that as I've been kind of from time to time taking us through Genesis. And judgment came upon Noah. Judgment came upon uh, Babel. Judgment came upon Assyria. Judgment came upon Babylon. 
We look at the scriptures and we see the judgment came upon, there was a third one that I was looking for, it just escaped my mind, but the judgment was coming upon others. And Israel experienced judgment just before they were ready to go into the promised land. Some were not able to enter in because of their unbelief. That was a judgment. Judgment came upon Moses because he misrepresented God in the presence of God's people when instead of speaking to the rock, he struck the rock and displayed anger. We see that judgment is present in the context of scriptures. And then you'll remember that as we look at Exodus, the, somewhere around, I think it's Exodus 33, where, where Moses desires to have this very unique experience with God where he wants to see God. And he cries out, he says, Lord, show me your glory. And God says to Moses, I will not show you my glory, I'll not reveal myself to you face to face, but I will cause my backward parts to go before you. And God hides him in the cleft of the rock, and God appears to Moses. And after we see this, this tremendous revelation of God's mercy and grace as he reveals something of himself and his sovereignty and his power and his majesty to Moses. So do, you, do you enjoy that when God reveals something to you in relation with his power and majesty? You have this, this glimpse of the glory of God. That after that revelation comes in Exodus 33, in Exodus 34, the Word of God says that God will judge the world and he will in no wise clear the guilty. Judgment then runs throughout the Old Testament and many examples. We couldn't even focus on all of them this morning, but then we, we leap into the New Testament and we see that there is a focus upon judgment. Matthew, and I, I haven't consulted John on the history of uh, the chronology of the, of the Gospels. I, I kind of take them as they are unless I come across something that tells me that something sh is, should be somewhere else or what have you. I know that they are organized thematically from time to time. But if we look at Matthew and see there that after we have the revelation of the birth of Christ, and see that shortly after that and some preliminary comments, we have the Sermon on the Mount. I think Luke places it later in the ministry of Christ. But we see that here at the very uh, augmenting of Christ's ministry, he speaks about judgment. He talks about the hand being thrown into the fire. You know the passage I'm referring to, the eye being plucked out. And he comes down to the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, the seventh chapter, and he says, Not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that in that day many will call me and crowd to me, Lord, but I will say, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. Here at the very beginning of Christ's ministry, there's a focus upon judgment. And we see that Elsewhere in the scriptures, he speaks of this issue of judgment. We see the Apostle Paul referring to judgment. Many examples of it. Why is it necessary? Why is this judgment necessary? Do we, do we take something or withhold back from individuals something of the truth of God without declaring the judgment of God? That there came a time in the context of the history of the church, it became unpopular to speak about the judgment of God because there was this feeling that it would not present God after the manner that would be desirable. I mean, after all, we are individuals of, of abounding intellect. And sophisticated, you know, are we not? But this message of judgment, archaic. But why is judgment necessary. Well, the first reason why it is necessary is, is for the purposes of vindication. And I wrote down the definition of vindication. I'm kind of liking my Apple phone. I can ask Siri things, you know, and, and bring stuff right away. I like that. How many of you have an Apple phone? Yes, I, I like that. I like getting information just like that. Vindication. Proving that someone is right, reasonable, or justified. Judgment is necessary for the vindication of God. 
that He is just, that He is right, that He is reasonable. In Romans, the 14th chapter, verse 10 and 11, it says, For we all, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. The judgment seat of Christ is necessary so that God would be vindicated in the eyes of all of creation. We know it's true that individuals may think that certainly God would not judge or condemn individuals to eternal and everlasting punishment. Certainly, a loving God would not do this thing. And sometimes individuals despise the proclamation of the gospel because of this issue of judgment. A harsh God. Judgment, not appropriate to identify with Yahweh, with the Lord of whoever he may be. But the judgment of God, the judgment seat of Christ, vindicates God where in that day, in the, when the judgment, the consummation of all things takes place, all will be assembled before the throne of Christ. And in that day, when the judgments are rendered, His glory, His righteousness, His justice will be on display. And no one will be able to argue with that justice regardless of whatever their thoughts have been prior in their existence, their earthly lives. Though there is a questioning of God and judgment now, there will be no, there will be no questioning then. And it's interesting that the book of Romans says through the Apostle Paul once again that in that day, every mouth will be stopped. Every mouth that wants to protest the judgment of Christ will be silenced because in that day God will be vindicated and mankind, and womankind, and childkind will see the Lord for who He is, that He is a just and holy and righteous So God is vindicated, but there's something else that is vindicated here, and there's another reason why uh, 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 there's... I want to speak of vindication in the context of another context. And that's the vindication of God's people. The judgment of God is necessary for the vindication of God's people. Think for a moment of those who have been martyred for the faith, and who were looked down upon and put to death, persecuted. And they were regarded after one manner in the context of this world, but at the consummation of all things in the judgment seat of Christ, believers will be on display, vindicated by God. We go through We go through things in the context of this life. We're not martyrs here. But we go through things in this life that are difficult. And we look at Romans 8.28, a real favorite passage for us all, is it not? Uh, where the Apostle Paul says, for all things work together for the good, for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. How many of you have been in a context where you said, I cannot see how anything that I am going through has any purpose in my life? Have you ever been in that place? Or if, if you did, you thought, I, I didn't need all of this. You know? <laughs> I didn't need all the things to work together for my good. And individuals go throughout the context of this life and they experience things and look back upon things that they've gone through and they try to make some sense of why 
they have had to go through these things, and, and there's no reason to be found. Because in the context of this life, there is no answer. But the Word of God says that all things do work together for the good, for those who love God and called according to His purpose. And in that final day, there will be a vindication. There will be a vindication even before the believer's eyes that they will see why it is that they went through what they went through. You remember the agony of the psalmist when he would look around and he would see the wicked flourish and the righteous struggling. And he'd cry out to God. He'd say, God, why, why is it that the wicked prosper? And the righteous struggle and, and have little. Why is it so? <laughs> At the judgment seat of Christ, God will take those individuals who have been in that place and he will lift them up and he will say, here's the reason why it was so. Here's what I was doing. And the righteous purposes of God will be known. There's a vindication of the people of God and the in the judgment seat of Christ. I've seen individuals, and I've said this before here, I'm sure, but I've seen individuals in straits, and the straits in which I've seen them is, has caused my, my heart to ache in pain for when I've thought about the context of their lives. But there will be a day of vindication that is coming for those who believe. And let me ask you this, in the context of your life, have you been in a place where you've been tremendously misunderstood by others? And there was nothing you could do to straighten it out. Have you been there? Have you had someone malign your name? Have you been misunderstood in the context of your family? In the context of friends? And there was just simply nothing you could do to straighten it out? Have you had purposes in your hearts towards certain individuals or people or situations, but you were in a, a place where you were powerless to express those purposes or see them come to pass, and you've known that in the midst of this, there's a great possibility that you were misunderstood. Has that been your experience ever? Have you been there? Has there ever been a place where you have wanted to cry out for a, a certain sense of vindication? I know I I would, I would look at the psalmist and talk about how he, he vindicates, God will vindicate his people. And there have been times I've said, not that my situation's really bad or has, or has been, but I've cried out, God, vindicate me. Reveal so that that which is hidden will be seen by someone else. There will be some sense of vindication. And I must tell you this, that at times in my life when I have wanted to, had, had purposes or designs or desires for something, but I was powerless to do it because of, of, of circumstance or whatever it is that may be, and I've been misunderstood, I look forward to the time when I will stand in the presence of God and there will be a vindication, there will be a revelation to others what was the purpose of my heart. Is, is that, does that make sense? And I, I do not believe it's selfish to think after this manner. Because there's a vindication that God brings. Individuals reviled, individuals rejected, scorned, unable, straightened out. All the things I mentioned before, but in the judgment of Christ, all will be made known and revealed. I, I don't know about you, but to me, that gives me great confidence. It gives me great encouragement to know that the path upon which we have walked, though imperfect, will be revealed and magnified in, in a way of, of vindication. Not to the credit of ourselves, but to the credit of God's grace. And, and then, of course, I missed another aspect of vindication. I talked about vindication of God. I forgot vindication of Jesus. So if we could just, like, you know, cut and paste, move these around, we, we have to talk about the vindication of Christ. Because Christ is regarded as, as nothing in this world today. His name's taken in vain. I know someone that I've known for many years, and, 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 and he disdains the name of Christ. And rejects him. 
And this world rejects Christ. But in the, at the judgment seat of Christ, Jesus said in John 5, the Father has given unto me the judgment. And I will judge for what individuals have done. We'll meet Christ either as Savior or as judge in that day. But Christ will be vindicated in that day because all who have scorned his name and persecuted him, who have rejected his truth, will see Christ for who he is, the exalted one of God, the Son of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Christ will be vindicated in the judgment. And so the word of God says that in Romans 14, the judgment of God, every knee will bow. In Philippians, the microscope is zeroed in a little bit more tightly. And, it's, and we see there revealed that God will judge through his servant, through his son, Christ. The Apostle Paul says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Our Savior maligned, the one we love, the one we live for, will be vindicated. And then, of course, there's a vindication, the context of creation. Romans 8 says that creation groans and longs for the manifestations of the sons of God because creation, because of man's sin, was subjected to futility. And the word of God tells us that creation is longing for the manifestation of the sons of God, for the judgment of God to take place. And then finally, see I had four points, but I had five under the first point. But then finally, we, we come, to this, come to this point, I'm almost, almost lost, we come to the point where we see that Judgment is necessary because it, it answers a response for which we are looking in the context of our lives. Now, how is that so? It is true that in the context of society, as, as sinful as things may become in our world, there's a sense or desire for justice. Is, is there not? And when someone is... When someone is hurt, if someone is killed, if someone is robbed, or someone is treated after some poor manner, covering the whole range of things, there's a sense in which inside of us, there's a longing for a certain amount of justice. Is that not correct? It's just something that is there. And do you remember when the Apostle Paul was on his way to Rome and he stood before Felix, the governor? He said, I will listen to this man. And so the Apostle Paul stands in the presence of Felix and he begins to proclaim to him the truth of God. And as he spoke about God and his judgment, the Word of God tells us that Felix trembled at what it was that he heard. And he said, I, I will put this man away, and I will, I will hear him at another time. You see, there was something inside of him. There was, there was something to which Paul could appeal, that in the heart and resides perhaps even deep within an individual. Every individual is this sense that there must be an accounting. There must be justice that takes place. And so societies, however flawed at times things may be, there is this a sense that, that justice must be there. So I believe that this, this answers the call of what is it within the, the heart of man and woman. So finally we come, then we, we come to the next step, that the nature of the judgment and The Word of God speaks about 
all of us standing before the judgment seat in Romans 14, 11, we read that. All will stand before the judgment seat of Christ or before the judgment of God. In Matthew 25, verses, I think it's 31 and following, you have to look it up because I can't read my notes, what I had written down there, but the, the scriptures talk about the, 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 the great white throne judgment, this great judgment that takes place at the gathering at the end of time. And I, I don't know how you've, ever, how, you've seen it, how you've seen it in your own mind. I have this mind that pictures things. And the word of God says that in that day, all of the nations of the earth will be gathered before him. How is it possible? I, I don't know. But all will be gathered before him, and the scriptures tell us that he will separate the sheep from the goats. There was this final separation that will take place. But the word of God says there, all must stand before him. All must stand before him. Romans 14, all must stand. But here in this text, we have something that is different in the fifth chapter. It says here, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And the word appear is significant. I, once again, I'm, I, I don't check what other translations render here. But the word for appear doesn't mean just show up. It means something more than that. It, it means all will be made manifest before the judgment seat of Christ. All will be made manifest. And so that means that there will be nothing that is hidden. And so we look at the Word of God, and just to throw a, I'm going to throw a few verses out. We don't have time to look at them all this morning. But the Word of God says in Matthew 12, 36, that we will give an account for every careless word that we have spoken. The Word of God speaks to us about the purposes of our hearts being revealed in Romans 2.16. I take that to be both positively and negatively. Even the purposes of your heart, the things that you've not expressed to other individuals, those things will be manifest. As your words, the words that are spoken in secret that Maybe you just said to yourself or whatever, but they were spoken. Those words will be manifest. The scriptures tell us that not only will that take place, I can't even read my next, uh, the, the hidden things. There's nothing that can be hidden, but all will be revealed when the Lord will come. He will bring to light the things now hidden. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Matthew 10, 26, nothing will be hidden that will not be revealed. There's a manifestation then of everything that has taken place in the context of our lives. How does this happen? I, I don't know. The scriptures speak to us about judgment and give us uh, quite a bit of information, but there's a lot that's withheld from us. But when you think about that, now let me ask you this, how many of you are really concerned? <laughs> I mean, if today we said, this morning we will take Roger Melson as our example to you all, and we have this wonderful overhead projector, and we are going to display for all of you to see all of his hidden thoughts, all of the secret things he has done, all the words that he has spoken, all of his misdeeds, we're going to project them on the screen. If that were the case, I'd be somewhere else. I wouldn't be here, I can tell you that. And I, I have thought, Lord, when it comes to me, I want to leave the room. You know what I mean? How many of us want to be exposed to that manner and to that extent? Because we think of the shame that comes along with such exposure, right? Do you want all of your thoughts displayed? All the words you've said? All of those things. Do you want that to happen? But the Word of God says it's going to happen. How? I don't know. Well, when we think about that, here's where the, here's where the knife has come in towards believers, and it's, it's been said, well, you know, see... You're messing up. 
And because you're messing up, you better clean up your act because all this stuff is on the screen. <laughs> let, me, let me ask you this. When we stand as believers in the presence of Christ, is there any accusation that can be brought against us? Is there? What does the scripture say? If, if God is for us, who can be against us? That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I had someone tell me one time, well, you know what's going to happen is when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we're going to be, you know, there with, you know, all those goats, you know, and uh, some sheep. And, and, and all this is going to be revealed, and in, and in that instant where everything is going to be revealed, we're going to feel the shame for what it is that we did or didn't do. Have you thought about that? Feeling that? No. But let me ask you this. If Jesus Christ went to the cross to die for your sins, what value is there that in that moment there's a certain sense of shame that you have? Feel. Just one, one, one moment of shame before coming, coming at you. You see, there's no charge that can be brought against the elect of God. Because Christ bore all of our sins upon the cross. And the word of God says, I, I love, I love uh, Isaiah 53. Where I've been kind of working through that in communion. But there's an image there in Isaiah 53 where, it's, where God says that, God, that, that, that our sins were poured upon Christ. Poured upon him. And born there for us. The reality is that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and yes, those things will be revealed. But will you feel shame and will you be fearful in that day? How many of you here today have gone uh, through an experience in your life where God, God's grace has been poured out upon you and God has brought a release to you God's grace has been poured out upon you after such a manner that you've been delivered for something. Or you've been forgiven for something that was hanging over your head or that was there. Have you been in that place? When you come to that place, what is it that you felt on the other side of sensing God's forgiveness? Isn't it true that there was this tremendous release that you felt in your heart? I have been forgiven. I have been cleansed. I, I had an individual come to me one time and God had delivered him from something that was significant. And he said, he said, Rod, you know, I want to stand up on Sunday and tell people what God has done for me. I said, no. <laughs> no, 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 we're not going to do that. <laughs> not going to do that. But you know what? He, he was expressing something to me that was significant. He was saying, I feel free. I feel free. I've been released from this. There's... There's not a condemnation that comes my way because God has, been for, has forgiven me and I've been set free. Isn't it true that, that those times when God's joy has been the greatest in our lives is when we've experienced those moments of forgiveness or the breaking of His grace upon our lives? You see, the reality of it is that in the kingdom of heaven and in the judgment, there will be, He's going to wipe away every tear. He's going to take away fear. It's, he's going to take away pride. That's why we're, we're concerned about it all. See, frankly, that's why I don't want my sins flashed up there. Other people are going to see what I'm like, you know. <laughs> so I'm more concerned about what people think about me than what God does, who looks upon me and sees everything about my life, you know. But you see, in that day, those failures, those sins, they'll be simply trophies of God's grace. Because he poured his grace out upon us and forgiveness has been given to us rich and free. It'll be like, it'll be like Israel going out of Egypt. And they find themselves there at the Red Sea and their backs are to the Red Sea. 
And here comes Pharaoh's army. The enemies that are coming towards them to take away their lives. And as Israel is passing through the dry ground of that sea, they arrive to the other side. And the Scriptures tell us then that Pharaoh's army, Pharaoh's army began to march across that sea and, and the waters closed upon them and drowned them all. You see, that's what your sins will be like. Were they fearful of Pharaoh and his soldiers and chariots at that moment? They were all drowned in the sea. Our sins will be like dry bones cast in a valley that have no power over us. We are trophies of God's grace. You see, this is a tremendous delight that we have as believers. While the unbeliever, as we looked at it the last time, I, I had in my notes, I don't know whether I said it or not, but where the unbeliever will, will bemoan perhaps the sins, or he will be reminded, not bemoaned, but he'll be reminded of his sins throughout eternity. The believer will too. But we'll look at them and we'll see God's grace. God's grace. And no one will be looking at anyone else and thinking less of anyone else because we're all in the same place. All wearing the same shoes. It's the nature of the judgment of Christ. This is not written to us so that we might fear. It's written to us so that we might all the more long to live for him and to give thanks to him for what it is we make our aim. Lord, I will make my aim to please you. Because I know the reverence of the Lord, I will seek to persuade men and women. That's all we have time for really today, but there's no fear in the judgment for those who believe. No fear. Because of what Christ has accomplished for us. Let's bow our heads together for prayer. Heavenly Father, I give thanks to you for my brothers and sisters that are here today, for each life represented in this room. That even before the foundations of the earth, you set your eternal purposes upon them and upon the path that they've walked. And I thank you, Father, that we all stand in your presence because of your grace. And we are so grateful today that there's no charge that's been brought against us that we will be received into your presence when you look upon us and you say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many. I pray, Father, that today you would encourage each heart that is here with your word of truth. We ask this in Jesus' name.